Today on Study the Word. Then I saw heaven opened and a white horse was standing there. Its rider was named Faithful and True. He judges fairly and wages a righteous war. Now, who is this on the white horse? It's Jesus in his resurrected body. His resurrected body, the first fruits of many to come. The exact same body that his disciples saw during his 40 years between crucifixion and resurrection. The same body. And when you get to heaven, you will be greeted by the same Jesus in the same physical body that his disciples saw in the upper room. Join us for the next half hour as we study the Word with our Bible teacher, Pastor Tom Keller. We are the radio ministry of Calvary Chapel, Lebanon, located in Lebanon, Pennsylvania. Today on Study the Word, Pastor Tom is in Revelation chapter 19 as he begins a discussion of the famed Battle of Armageddon. Yes, movies and books have attempted to tell the story, but we need look no further than Revelation for the truth of what will go down. Here's Pastor Tom starting with verse 9. We looked at the wedding feast of the Lamb, and we ended in chapter 19, verse 9, with these words. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. And he added, these are true words that come from God. Blessed indeed we are, praise God. But then John is immediately rebuked for bowing down to the angel that was speaking to him. In verse 10, Then I fell down at his feet, at the feet of an angel, to worship him. But he said, the angel said, No, don't worship me. I am a servant of God, just like you and your brothers and sisters who testify about their faith in Jesus. Worship only God. The essence of prophecy is to give a clear witness for Jesus. And folks, there is an important biblical principle found here. Angels will never, ever accept the praise of man. And so this becomes one clear way as you read your Bible to distinguish in a story if someone is truly encountering God in a particular story or are they encountering an angel because an angel will never let a human being worship them. They defer all that to God. Now, theophany is a manifestation, a physical manifestation of God upon the earth where he appears. An example, many believe, is Genesis chapter 12, verse 7. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, I will give this land to your descendants. And Abram built an altar there and dedicated it to the Lord who had appeared to him. A theophany. But there are also Christophanies. Where in the Bible, a pre-incarnate Christ appears to man. An example many point to would be Joshua 5. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No. But I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said. What does 
my Lord say to his servant? And in that story, the Lord accepted his worship, which means it could not have been an angel. It's a good test for you to remember going forward. And so why do we believe that this figure in Joshua was not an angel? Because Joshua worshiped him, and he accepted Joshua's worship. And as we see in our chapter today, an angel will never, ever accept the worship of God. It's been said that angels and man both worship God, were created to worship God. I like this saying, praising God is one of the highest and purest acts of religion. In prayer, we act like men. In praise, we act like angels. That's beautiful. Ellicott said this, quote, one bond of service that unites angels and man is to be servants of God, which is the highest title they and we can attain to. And then there is a critically key important verse that we find tucked away in this chapter right here, verse 10. The last line of verse 10. For the essence of prophecy is to give a clear witness for Jesus. ESV says it this way. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Pulpit commentary says, quote, to prophesy is to understand and proclaim the truth concerning God. It says, and the ultimate design behind all biblical proclamation is to point people to Jesus. Barnes, a commentator, says, quote, the design of prophecy is to bear witness to Jesus. He says the word prophecy here seems to be used in a larger sense in which it is often employed in the New Testament, meaning to make known God's divine will. And the primary reference here would seem to be to the preachers and teachers of the New Testament. The sense is that their grand business is to bear testimony to their Savior. They end by saying, and so they are all, whether angels or apostles or ordinary teachers, they're all appointed for this one purpose, to proclaim the truth concerning Jesus. And then in verse 11, we make another transition. For this, I ask you to picture a huge stage, something like this, with a curtain behind that's closed but is being opened up. And this curtain is being allowed, opened up to allow those on the other side in heaven to travel to the earth. So verse 11 opens up the celestial portal, if you will, to allow those in heaven, you will be a part of this if you're saved, to be transported to the earth in your physical resurrected body. Bodies just like Jesus had after he was resurrected. And you will be a part of that travel team. So again, as this curtain opens to us, listen and get the scene. Then I saw heaven opened and a white horse was standing there. Its rider was named Faithful and True for he judges fairly and wages a righteous war. His eyes were like flames of fire and on his head were many crowns. A name was written on him that no one understood except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his title was the Word of God. The armies of heaven, dressed in the finest of pure white linen, followed him, that's us, on white horses. 
From his mouth came a sharp sword to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will release the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty, like juice flowing from a wine press. On his robe, at his thigh, was written this title, King of all kings and Lord of all lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, shouting to the vultures flying high in the sky, Come, gather together for the great banquet God has prepared. Come, and eat the flesh of kings, generals, and strong warriors, of horses and their riders, and of all humanity, both free and slave, small and great. Then I saw the beast, this is the Antichrist, and the kings of the world and their armies gathered together to fight against the one sitting on the horse and his army. This is the battle of Armageddon. And the beast, the Antichrist, was captured. And with him, the false prophet, who did mighty miracles on behalf of the beast, miracles that deceived all who had accepted the mark of the beast and who worshiped his statue. Both the beast, the Antichrist, and his false prophet were thrown alive. Get that, thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The entire army was killed by the sharp sword that came out of the mouth of the one riding the white horse, Jesus. And the vultures all gorged themselves on the dead bodies. Wow, wow, what a scene. This is it, this is the end. The seven years has ended in this scene. God's patience has finally come to an end. So let's look at this in sections. Verse 11, then I saw heaven opened and a white horse was standing there. Its rider was named Faithful and True. He judges fairly and wages a righteous war. Now, who is this on the white horse? It's Jesus in his resurrected body. His resurrected body, the first fruits of many to come. The exact same body that his disciples saw during his 40 years between crucifixion and resurrection. The same body. And when you get to heaven, you will be greeted by the same Jesus in the same physical body that his disciples saw in the upper room. Now, how cool is that? And that is the same body that Jesus will return to the earth in here in chapter 19. In verse 11, we are told that Jesus' name is faithful and true. In Greek, the word for faithful is pistos, and it means worthy of trust, one that can be relied upon. The word true in Greek is alathanas, alathanas, and it means real, true, genuine. How much do we need leaders today to be real, true, genuine? It says that which has not only the name and look of the person named, but also possesses the real nature corresponding to that name in every respect. Jesus is faithful and true. And those two words have very special significance to those who have just survived the seven years of tribulations as Christians. Because those surviving, those surviving believers have seen many false messiahs, many unreal messiahs, many non-genuine messiahs during that seven-year period. And Jesus told us, told them, 
that that will happen during the seven years. In Matthew 24, verse 21, to give context to that this is during the seven years, it says, for there will be greater anguish than at any time since the world began, and it will never be so great again. It's speaking of the great tribulation. A few verses later, with that as backdrop to the context, it says, then if anyone tells you, look, here is the Messiah, or there he is, don't believe it. So Jesus speaking says that during that seven years, verse 24, four false messiahs and false prophets, plural, will rise up and perform great signs and wonders so as to deceive, if possible, even God's chosen ones. See, I have warned you about this time ahead. So if anyone tells you, look, the Messiah is out in the desert, don't bother to go and look. Or look, he's hiding here. Don't believe it. For as the lightning flashes in the east and shines to the west, so it will be when the Son of Man comes. And for those who I believe mistakenly put the rapture of the church at the end of the seven years, John MacArthur says this. He says, quote, The nature of this event, of this battle of Armageddon, shows how it differs from the rapture. At the rapture, Christ meets his own in the air. In this event, he comes down with them to the earth. At the rapture, there is no judgment. In this event, it is all judgment. He says this event is preceded by blackness and the darkening sun, the moon gone out, stars falling, smoke, and then lightning and blinding glory as Jesus comes. Seven terrifying years on earth with and heavenly upheaval. He says, but this is not at all the picture we were given of the rapture. In fact, the picture of the rapture is as different as night and day. First Thessalonians, and speaking of the rapture, God says this to us through the Apostle Paul. Now concerning how and when all this will happen, dear brothers and sisters, we don't really need to write to you. For you know quite well that the day of the Lord's return will come unexpectedly like a thief in the night. When people are saying everything is peaceful and secure, then disaster will fall upon them. How could that be during the seven years? Nothing's going to be peaceful. Nothing's going to be secure. Then disaster will fall upon them as suddenly as a pregnant woman's labor pains begin, and there will be no escape. So as I said, I will never understand how people can put the rapture at the end of the seven years. It has never, it will never make sense to me. And then in verse 12 and 13, we are given more details about Jesus' appearance. It says this, His eyes, Jesus, his eyes were like flames of fire, and on his head were many crowns. A name was written on him that no one understood except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his title was the Word of God. It says his eyes were like flames. In the Bible, fire always points to judgment, as in fire testing the quality of gold or silver. And we see that Jesus' head is crowned with many crowns. And in the Greek, the word that's used here for crown is diadem, which is a crown symbolizing his right to rule, his sovereignty, his right to rule over the earth. And we're told that Jesus is given a name that is written on him, a name that no one understands what it means. No one, not an angel, not a single person in heaven knows what that name means. We certainly won't try to guess. 
And verse 13 says, he is wearing a robe dipped in blood. John Wolvert says, quote, as if anticipating the bloodshed to come. Now, the prophet Isaiah echoes this thought in Isaiah chapter 63. He says, why are your garments red like those of one treading the winepress? The response to that question from God, I've trodden the winepress alone. From the nations, no one was with me. I trampled them in my anger and trod them down in my wrath. Their blood splattered my garments, and I stained all my clothing. It was for me the day of vengeance. The year for me to redeem had come. And verse 13 tells us that the title given to Jesus as he returns is the word of God. In Greek, the word is logos, and it means the essential word of God, Jesus Christ, the personal wisdom and power in union with God, the second person of the Trinity. And we see that there is an army of people behind him, also riding on horses. It says, the armies of heaven dressed in the finest of pure white linen followed him on white horses. And do we know who comprises, who makes up this great army following behind? We do. It's you and you and you and you and you. If you're saved, you will be a part. You will be a part of that army. Some say angels comprise that army coming back as well. It's not crystal clear. Could be. It adds to the picture a bit. And so let's preview what your return to the earth is going to look like. Number one, it says you will be dressed in white linen and you will be riding a white horse. So do we know what the white linen represents here? Well, it represents different things in the Bible at different times. But here we know what it represents because we're told that back in verse 8. It says she has been given the finest of pure white linen to wear for the fine linen represents the good deeds of God's holy people. So in this context, in this setting, it represents the good deeds that we've done. We're not saved by those, but that's what the, good, what the white linen represents here. And note that we come riding back on white horses. Verse 14, the armies of heaven, us, dressed in the finest of pure white linen, followed him, followed Jesus on white horses. Now, why a horse? Well, horse was an animal of war. And here it represents that very idea. Barnes, a commentator, says, quote, emblems of triumph or victory. And as a sidebar for everyone who's ever asked, will there be animals in heaven? The answer is given to us right here, isn't it? The answer is yes. Because we come to the earth from heaven riding white horses that we have mounted in heaven. So we do know that at least some animals are there. If horses, why not others? I don't think cats are going to be there. <laughs> no, I take that back. In heaven, cats will all have lost their attitudes, <laughs> and they'll be friendly. So let's go with that one. My wife said, I can't believe you took that on. I did. And then verse 15 says, from his mouth, from the mouth of Jesus, came a sharp sword to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will release the fierce wrath of God the Almighty like juice flowing from 
a wine press. Now, interesting, the word used for sword here, there are multiple words. One can be ramphia, and the other is macaron. And the word that's used is ramphia. And this is a large sword. Properly, they say, a long thoration javelin. But verse 15 says, and with this sword, Jesus strikes down the nations. The commentator Morris says, quote, it is with the word and not the armies that Jesus smites the nations. The armies play no part except as a backdrop to the word, the logos. Amir Sarfati adds this thought that some of you might like. He says, but Amir, I don't want to be a part of an army. I don't even kill spiders when they come into my house. He says, fear not, there's only one righteous warrior who will fight in this battle, and it is not you. Your job will be to ride behind your king, which is exactly where you will want to be. He says, in fact, there will be only two options on the day of Christ's return. You will either see Jesus' face or his back. In that day of his judgment, it will be much better to be riding behind him than fleeing from in front of him. And verse 15 says this, from his mouth came a sharp sword to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will release the fierce wrath of God Almighty like juice flowing from a wine press. And again, as I quoted already, this is most probably referring to what Isaiah prophesied 700 years before Christ, 2,700 years from our era. It says, why are your clothes so red as if you've been treading out grapes? And the Lord responds, I've been treading the wine press alone. No one was there to help me. In my anger, I've trampled my enemies as if they were grapes. In my fury, I've trampled my foes. Their blood has stained my clothes. And then in verse 16, it says, On his robe, at his thigh, was written this title, King of all kings and Lord of all lords. When Jesus comes to rule over all the nations of the world, he will rule over every king and president and chancellor and dictator and despot. You know, this isn't in my notes, but when you read this in God, when you read this in the Old Testament, it gives the idea clearly that the world rulers that are already in place, if they were not a part of the, of the battle of Armageddon, are still going to be ruling. And he will rule over those rulers who are already in place. Some of them will no doubtly switch and change. But he is going to rule over world rulers who are in place over the different nations. And this banner displays a title emblazoned upon it, a title that emphasizes and highlights Jesus' absolute sovereignty and right over every human ruler during that thousand years. And remember, we come and rule and reign with him during that thousand years. Verse 17 and 18 says this, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, shouting to the vultures high in the sky, Come! Gather together for the great banquet God has prepared. Come and eat the flesh of kings, generals, and strong warriors, of horses and their riders, and of all humanity, both free and slave, great and small. Now note that this verse is preparatory because the battle hasn't even begun yet, but God is already calling in the cleanup crew, these vultures. 
John MacArthur says the remaining verses of this chapter depict this frightening holocaust which is unparalleled in human history. The battle of Armageddon, the pinnacle of the day of the Lord. Truth made simple. This is Study the Word with Pastor Tom Keller. We're going through Revelation right now. To hear these studies again, either go to our website at ccleb.com or visit our YouTube page. Subscribe to our channel at Calvary Chapel, Lebanon. And there you can watch our services live or on demand. If you're interested in a CD copy, call us at 717-273-5633. Once again, that's 717-273-5633. It really takes a team to bring these studies to the radio every day. And we're thankful for each and every listener that supports what we do. We can't do it alone. To help us provide study of the word on stations like this one all across the nation, visit ccleb.com or call 717-273-5633. If you prefer to write, let me give you our mailing address. Study the word, 740 Willow Street, Lebanon, Pennsylvania, 17046. Hey, we also want to invite you to join us for a Sunday service, either in person or online. You can get all the information you need or watch the live stream at ccleb.com. Or again, go to our YouTube channel at Calvary Chapel, Lebanon. There's much more to come in Revelation. Don't miss a moment of the journey. We'll see you next time on Study the Word with Pastor Tom Keller. This program is presented by Calvary Chapel, Lebanon, Pennsylvania, and made possible through your generous support online at ccleb.com.